we are in the last week, uh, week 12 of a series that we started a while ago uh, called The Gospel Changes Everything. And so I'm not going to do a big recap and, you know, where we've gone, but we uh, touched on certain things. One of the big ones that we started off was uh, creation mandate. Uh, the idea that we have been created to see the world uh, flourish, our cities flourish. And so uh, that was a big aspect that that goes all the way back to the garden uh, when human beings were created and how we were created to to serve and and see this place and this world that we live in thrive uh, even before the fall. But that's also true after the fall and after sin enters the world that we are to seek the welfare of the city and uh, talked about how that the gospel then is our motivation. We start with the gospel, and that motivates us to want to, to change and to want to fix society in ways that we think that we can. And, and now we might disagree on how we ought to go do those things, uh, but one thing is always for sure, and that's that the gospel is the hope of the world. And so I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. We talked about how the gospel changes even how we interact with social media, um, how it interacts our view and, and, and changes our view on politics uh, that we should be kingdom of God centered first and foremost and let that influence our politics. We talked about uh, uh, Paul, one of our elders, talked about listening, uh, the language of love. And then and last week, not last week, two weeks ago, looked at the idea of uh, that, that real change is possible, uh, but get the log out of your own eye first and looking at the idea of hypocrisy. And so this week we're going we're gonna to finish that up. But before, again, just kind of in the, in the light of this, we're going to be jumping into a new uh, series, uh, just a kind of a smaller Advent series called Born is the King. And we're going to be looking at a couple old uh, Christmas carols and hymns, which I just love doing. There's so much theology in these old hymns. And I think a lot of times, like a lot of old hymns that we sing here at Hope, that we, we have these phrases that we know and we sing and we have them memorized in our heart. But do we really know the depth of what some of that, what that means? And so excited to to jump into Christmas. I love it. And as my, my oldest son, Henry, gets a little bit older, uh, it just makes Christmas like that much more fun again. You know, you just kind of see the world through a three-year-old's eyes again. And it's just awesome. And, uh, and yet, trying to make sure that he understands Jesus is the reason for the season, right? I mean, it's, it's just so hard because there's so much stuff that goes on with Christmas, but making sure that uh, there's so much theology that I'm, I'm excited about. Um, when it comes to Christmas. And and so I just want to recap just quickly, looking at this idea that real change is possible. And when we look at the world around us, last week or two weeks ago, uh, last week was just kind of a standalone Thanksgiving message, but two weeks ago, looking at this idea that real change is possible, that we that was more on the individual aspect, uh, that in, within myself, that I can, I can change, I can, I can kill sin, I can defeat sin, but I got to start with myself first before I can start pointing out sin in other people's lives. And so the, the sin and the great sin of hypocrisy um, that I think uh, creeps up in all of us. But what I did is I, I went through uh, Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 6, uh, which a lot of it, five chapters 5 through 7, have been uh, titled the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. And I had this quote uh, by a gentleman named R.T. France, and I just want to read this again. It says, because of this distinctive focus of chapters 5 through 7 that I have preferred to call the Discourse on Discipleship, rather than the use of familiar but non-descriptive title Sermon on the Mount, a term which too often conveys to modern hearers the concept of a general code of, code of ethics rather than specific demands for the kingdom of heaven. 
And so looking at that, right, that this, this Sermon on the Mount isn't just a good code, isn't just a, a good way of life, isn't just a way like, hey, if you live this way, uh, things will be better. That's true, but there's something more going on when we look at the teaching of Jesus, and we had this acronym that we've used at Hope for a while, but GUPA, G meaning gospel-centered, U mean utter dependence on the Holy Spirit, and then P is pathway, A is accountability. And a lot of times when you read this Sermon on the Mount, this discourse on discipleship, people a lot of times, myself included, jump to pathway and accountability. They hear these, these laws, if you will, this teaching from Jesus, and they immediately go, okay, this is how we live this way. And then even the passages that we're going to be looking at in chapter 5 today, if you jump right to the pathway, Jesus said this, okay, here's how we do that that's when you get into what we call law or legalism. And, when, and you can go back and forth uh, when we have this idea that, that when you read this discourse on discipleship, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, it can sound a lot like law. Just do this, do this, do this. And if you do that, things will be better. And that's not the gospel. It's not what Jesus teaches. And so this week, we're going to be looking at real changes possible, but we have to have a faithful presence in the world and this is now going to kind of shift. Where, where, where two weeks ago, it was more on the individual. This week, we're going to be looking at more of the corporate, looking at the church and us as a church, maybe specifically here in Lower Town, but just the church in general. As Jesus is, again, he kind of has this aside to his disciples. It's not this huge, massive sermon to the, to the multitudes, although the multitudes were there listening. He's talking to his disciples, his close followers, and that's exactly what uh, he's, is happening here in this passage. Uh, to kick us off, I, I, uh, right when I first met my, my in-laws, so this would have been, you know, 12 years ago or something like that, I was sitting down at my mother-in-law's table, and, and if, you know, mom, you're watching. <laughs> Sorry, I love you. Um, and we had just met. I didn't know her that well. Um, I didn't know Angela's family, really. I think it was one of the first times we met. I was sitting down at their dining room table, and I don't remember what we were eating, uh, but I just said, could someone please pass the salt and pepper? And my mother-in-law's reply was, oh, you're a foodie. <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't know if asking for salt and pepper makes you, a, makes you a foodie, right? But then she had to like, you know, go and, and go, go find it. Like she had to go, go get the salt and the pepper. Um, and again, I wouldn't consider myself a foodie, uh, but I do like having some seasoning on my food, whether it be salt and pepper. And so this week, I want to focus in specifically on what salt is, and when Jesus commands the church to be the salt of the earth. Let me just read this, this passage here. This is Matthew chapter 5, uh, 13 through 17. I have it up on the screens, but I'll read it out loud. This is from the NIV. So let me just go ahead and read, and you can feel, feel free to follow along. It says, you are the salt of the earth. You disciples are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, disciples. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That is the passage we're going to be looking at. And so the very first thing, I'm just going to take this phrase by phrase. I'm only, I've only got one other verse from Jesus and a story about Jesus from another gospel. 
Uh, but just going to be walking through these verses today. So starting off with verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. It's interesting that in that culture, salt uh, is, is, it was, it was quite valuable. There were actually Roman soldiers who were paid in salt. Uh, and even though it's easy to acquire, if you have time and patience, and as you can see in this picture, some land, that all they do is they just take some salt water, right? Whether it be from the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and they and they put it up onto these 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 drier, you know, shallower land, and then they just let the sun do its work, and it evaporates and bakes all the all the water away, and then they're left with just layers of salt, and then they scrape it into piles like this, and they 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 carry it away. But there was a huge value on the salt, even though it was readily available because of the principles and the properties of that salt. Uh, within the Greek, and they actually, the Greek in the language, they actually call it divine. We have uh, God, who is theos, theos, and, and, and they talk about salt as divine, um, and this uh, theion is, is the word. The Romans actually had this phrase, kind of like we use this phrase of, uh, nothing is as sure, or as sure as death and taxes, that there's actually uh, this phrase they would use that there is nothing more useful than sun and salt. Um, and within the language, they actually said it in Latin, and, and it was just kind of a play on word. It sounded like a rhyme. It was like a little, little quip that they would say, nothing is more useful than sun and salt. That it's easy, it's, it's readily available, and yet it's incredibly valuable. So what are uh, some aspects of salt? And so when Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. And he doesn't say this explicitly. He doesn't go and break it down to these three things. But what are the properties of salt that we can see that say, this, this is what we should be like. If I am to be, and I'm commanded to be the salt of the world, what is it that I should be doing personally? What should we be doing corporately? And so I just want to look at some aspects of salt, three aspects of salt um, that was actually very intriguing to me as I was uh, studying and reading about this. The first one is that it's connected with purity. And we know this from just the purifying principles as far as cleaning or those kinds of things. Uh, but purity in the sense that when they, when they talk about there's nothing more useful than sun and salt, but the purity that it came from the sun and the sea, that it's just, it was just this innocent thing. You didn't have to be mined and didn't have to be dirty and sweat. It's just, it's just pure. And that was the whole idea. And so when we look at ourselves, yes, individual purity, but corporate purity, church purity, that we should, we should stand out, not to be, again, we've talked about this in the past, not to be, not to be weirdos, not to, 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 to look a certain way or talk a certain way, you know, and, and speak and pray in the King James English or all these different things, but to stand out based on our purity, that when we're with other people, they should be intrigued by that. In James 1.27, it says that we should be unstained by the world. And it's that whole idea that I'm in the world, I'm just not of the world. That they, they value power and wealth and recognition and pride, all these different aspects. And to say, no, I, I value Jesus and I value what Jesus wants and therefore we're going to stand out. We're going to have some distinctions. But that's what we ought to be. Now again, I'm, we're going to get there, but this isn't ought to be because if I don't, I, I'm now losing my standing with God. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. So we'll, we'll, we'll connect those dots in a, in a minute here. Another aspect of salt is that it is a, a preservative. And we know this, if you've ever had corned beef hash, one of my favorite meals is a, is a Reuben sandwich. Good old Reuben. I've tried making my own corned beef. Um, 
I don't recommend it. Uh, I, I do a lot of cooking, but it just, it just, things just don't quite turn out the way you think they would. It was overly salty. So I don't know if, if, you know, other companies do it differently, but, but corned beef is just t- simply taking a giant thing of beef and soaking it in salt until the salt penetrates all the way through. And it, and what's the salt do? It, it, it sucks all the moisture out. So therefore it can't, it won't rot. And there, there's nowhere for bacteria to, to grow and to feast on that. And that's what it does. It, it preserves, uh, Plutarch. Uh, he's a Roman historian and philosopher, not the, uh, who was the game? Who was the game master from, uh, uh, Hunger Games? Remember the Hunger Games? Was there, wasn't the guy named Plutarch? Yeah. Thank you. All right. See, I'm, I'm still relevant. Even though that came out like 10 years ago. Thank you. Plutarch says this. He's a Roman historian, philosopher. Uh, he actually talked about how meat that obviously once it's removed, uh, from an animal or a live being, it, it dies, right? It's, it's, it's dead. It starts to immediately decompose. And he actually refers to salt as actually like the soul being re-entered into the body, right? That it's being reinstated into this dead body, this life-giving, preserving salt, that instead of something going from, from total decay and rot, that it can have life-giving properties for much, much longer. And this is the whole idea of the church, that we should be life-giving to those around us individually, but also life-giving in our communities, that we shouldn't be soul-sucking. By our mere presence, we should make it easier for others to be good. We should make it easier for others to do what's right in, in a world that is corrupt and fallen, right? And we can think of it as like a positive peer pressure. If you ever, you know, hey, did any of you ever grow up? Uh, if you went to school or anything like that, that you're, there, were all, there were just were always people that were just constantly negative influences and the peer pressure. And it's amazing how hard that is when you're younger to say no. But I don't know if that's ever changed. Then when we have a culture that says, hey, you got to do this, act this way, do this thing, let's immediately jump to the P, the pathway. This is how we ought to live our lives. And this is how, if you want to care for the world, this is what, this is what we're going to do. That No, 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 no. We got to get back to the gospel. That we should be gospel-centered and then we should have positive peer pressure to get people focused back on Jesus. And it's not until we have utter reliance in the gospel and the spirit, then we move to pathway. How do we fix this? And that's where we're going to start disagreeing, but we got to focus on the gospel. That's the whole point of this series. The gospel changes everything. The third aspect of salt is that it enhances flavor. I actually uh, had to, because when I first typed this little word, enhances, I said it adds flavor. And then I was like, does it actually add flavor? Why does salt add flavor? Well, you know, because everyone, we've all heard that salt adds flavor. I was and I just kind of went down a little, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, but I just was like, why, what happens? What's the process that happens? And, and there was like a salt website, who knew? Um, and people have studied this chemical uh, and its properties. And what it does, which was really uh, interesting to me, is it doesn't, because it I thought, I was like, okay, is it, the, is it the flavor of salt that adds or does it make the food better? And that's actually what it does. So there's something about salt that actually when you add it to your food, the, the properties of proteins uh, specifically are, are kind of round up tight like a spring and, and salt just stretches them out. So it gives more surface area for your, your body to be able to taste uh, those aspects. And then, but in the same time, it decreases the bitterness. So the bitterness goes lower and the flavor goes up, but it also, uh, which I thought was uh, remarkable to me too, 
is it actually releases aroma so you can smell it more. And we know that, you know, like 90% of tasting is, is through smell. And if you've had COVID like I have, you know that that is true. Um, just eating garlic, why not? Uh, eating some carrots, who cares? Carrots are good, but you know, just raw carrots for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner because it didn't matter. And then you know you have a weight problem when you still crave a pizza when you can't taste anything. You know what I mean? Like, I know it's like, <laughs> I want a pizza. Oh, wait. <laughs> Listen, Christianity should lead to more flavor in life. And I don't think that's what the world views us or views the church as. I know, especially the way I grew up, but it was definitely like, oh, you're, you're a stick in the mud. You don't, even know how to, you don't even know how to have any fun. Just let loose. Just relax a little bit. And I don't think that's how we should enhance the flavor. We should enhance the quality of life. And again, not because we follow a list of rules that Jesus has given us in the Sermon on the Mount, but because it should transform us by the gospel. And now instead of I have to do this or I ought to do this, I now get to do these things. And that way of life, being faithful to my wife, I guarantee you is the best way to live. Um, not being drunk with wine, not, not all these different things that, that, that the world might say, hey, this is a good thing to say, man, I'm telling you, this, this way of life, it is so good. It is freeing. I found a couple of quotes that I thought were kind of interesting. There was one Emperor Julian, uh, he's nicknamed Julian the Apostate. I didn't know this, but he was the emperor after Constantine. If you know anything about, you know, early Roman, you know, whatever. Uh, Constantine was the first Roman uh, emperor to actually make Christianity uh, the state religion in Rome. But then Julian comes after Constantine, and he wants to go back. He says, man, this, this god is terrible. Let's go back to our old gods. Um, and he says this, have you, have you looked at these Christians closely? Hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked all, they, they brood their lives away unspurred by ambition. The sun, sh- the sun shines in them, but they do not see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they do not, they, they desire it uh, not. All their desire is to renounce and to suffer that they may come to die. Right? That, that shouldn't be the description of a Christian, right? That, that, that we shouldn't just be, ah, oh, well, woe is me. You know, hey, come back, Jesus, right? Uh, that's that That's that song. You know, I mean, if you you know me, I'm not a huge fan of it, but I'll fly away, oh, glory, ah, right? It's a fun song, but it just means like, oh, there's nothing for me here in this life. I'm just looking forward to the next one. Now, of course, I'm looking forward to the next one, but we can enjoy this life. We can enjoy it to its fullness. I think we can enjoy it fuller than people outside of the church that are without Christ because Christ is the truly fully human one. And when we live like him, we become more human rather than instinctual and animalistic. Another uh, quote, Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes, if maybe you've heard his name, he says, I might have entered the ministry of certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Uh, the word Robert there made it, I was from this slide, I goofed up, but Robert Lewis, Lewis Stevenson, a you know, well-known author, he wrote um, Jekyll and Hyde. What else? Here's another really big one that he wrote. Is there one off the top of your head? Tale of Two Cities? No, 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 no. I forget. Either way. I know it was Jekyll and Hyde. He wrote that one for sure. He says this in his, one of his diaries, it was written that he said, I have been to church today and I am not depressed. <laughs> This idea that it's assumed that if I go to church, I'm going to walk out of there depressed. And I'm telling you, if all you hear is law, 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 do this, be this, act like this, it's very depressing. It is incredibly depressing. And I grew up being taught all those laws. And then there was one time I went into a church in Chicago, and I remember 
feeling convicted over my sin, but, but feeling energized, feeling like, wow, there's actual change that can happen because the gospel was being preached, not just simply law, fix this, do that, act better, be better. Treasure Island. Thanks, Chaz. Treasure Island. You Googled it too. You missed it by that much. You're so close. All right, and then he moves on to this idea that uselessness invites disaster. And this is a warning. This is a warning to us as a church. This is a warning to us as individuals. Now, this is not a warning in the sense of you can lose your salvation. This is not about my standing with God. This is about what am I leading others to do and how, how are they, um, how am I leading them to Christ? He says this in verse 13, but you are the salt of the earth, but if a salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And there's a lot of different views, histor historically speaking, of um, what, what is this idea of being trampled underfoot? Um, salt doesn't necessarily lose its saltiness unless it dissolves and then even then, right? So it's kind of confusing what Jesus is saying here. Um, and so I'll, I'll get into the, 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 what he's actually saying. But the, historically speaking, there's a couple different uh, things uh, one of them was uh, that when people had salt or if it got wet or got, got corrupted in some way, they would, it was just kind of a thing, just throw it out in the street. And as it would trample, it would kind of pack into the, the bricks. And so it would help with roots and, and weeds growing in, in the streets. That's one theory. Another theory um, was that a lot of the stoves and ovens were outside, uh, kind of by the path. And they put salt under the rocks to enhance flavor, but also just for a heat shield and all that. But every once in a while that would crack and it would become broken. And so they would then discard that salt by just throwing it into the street. Um, they don't know. Nobody really knows. There's a lot of different theories out there. But the point here is that once it loses its saltiness, it's worthless, right? That uselessness invites disaster that, hey, this thing no longer is doing what it was designed to do. So get rid of it. We see this happen within the life of Christ as he is walking with his disciples in Mark chapter 11, 12 through 14. It says this, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. All right, so, and then, and then here, just the commentary says, when he reached it, he found uh, nothing but leaves. And then the commentary here is because it was not the season for figs. All right, so what's happening here? Jesus sees this tree, but it's in full bloom. It's in full leaf. And so he thinks, oh, I know it's not fig season, but that tree sure looks like it's in fig season. Maybe it's early it, or it bloomed early as far as the leaves. So possibly maybe it bloomed fruit in these figs. And so he goes up to it and there's nothing there. And then he says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And then as they are leaving uh, this area, uh, sure enough, this fig tree is withered up and is dead. And the disciples are like, what? Look, Jesus, you cursed it, and now it's totally dead. Uh, and he's like, yeah, let me teach you how to pray, <laughs> okay? Uh, which is just kind of an interesting interesting take on that, right? But what, what happened? Why, why did Jesus curse this? Because it looked a certain way. It acted a certain way. It looked like a fig tree. It looked like a fig tree in bloom, but it wasn't producing fruit. And this is why this uselessness invites disaster. He's saying within the church, within people who are actually disciples, it's a discourse on discipleship. If someone says, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm not being salt to the world, 
if I'm not enhancing uh, that flavor, uh, if I'm not uh, preserving the goodness of who Christ is, if I'm not connected with, with purity, then it's time to get rid of it. It's, it's false. And like we looked at two weeks ago, that's a hypocrite. Someone who acts a certain way, talks a certain way, but then their heart is far from Christ. And again, we could sit here all day and I could stand up here and I could scream at you and get all hot and sweaty and, and say, this is, you got to stop acting this way. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. That we should do this. We ought to do this. We need to do this if we're followers of Jesus, which we should. But then again, that falls into law. And then what happens? We fall short because every time we set up standards and rules for ourselves, we're always going to fall again. That if I set a reminder on my phone to be kind or whatever, right? And then I'm not one time. It's like, oh man, that thing, uh, I hate my phone. It doesn't remind me soon enough or whatever. And then, and then we fall into, into licentiousness. We say, well, when, when God said, don't lie or whatever this thing is that I'm struggling with and I fall, then well, what's the point of even trying to fight it? There is a third way and it's a gospel way, but what does that mean? What does it actually mean to be motivated to a pathway and accountability through the gospel and utter dependence on the Holy Spirit? One of my favorite little small group studies, we, we did this years ago in my small group, uh, and maybe we'll, we'll do it again at some point, but it was just called The Gospel-Centered Life by a uh, pastor, friend in, in Omaha, Nebraska, Bob Thune. And he, in this, in this little small group uh, study, he just has this one page. I mean, it has, it has just, it's just stuck in my head. Uh, that he, he lists, these, he had these two big lists of sins, we'll say. And in one of them, he says, uh, this is how an orphan reacts and this is how somebody who's adopted reacts. That when, for example, sin is pointed out in my life, uh, and this, and I've used this analogy, and so you guys know this is not an analogy, it's a story, that when I first got married, my wife used to come to me, uh, and she hasn't done this in years, by the grace of God, thankfully. I think I've changed a little bit. Um, that she used to come to me and say, Brian, can I, can I tell you something without you getting mad? And immediately, I'd go, what is it this time, right? And I would get mad by her without, right? Because I didn't understand the gospel. Because I reacted as an orphan. I got defensive over my thing and my sin. And I, and I blamed it on other people. And I pointed out their sin and, the, and the, the little speck in their eye without taking the beam out of my own eye. And then I, I struggled with that. But then once you understand what it means to be adopted, to know that my presence, my standing with God doesn't change, now my response is completely different. So that when sin is exposed in my life and we walk through this discourse on discipleship and we say, man, am I, not, am I being fruit? Am I being salt? To say, well, this is how we ought to do this. We, go, we jump to here. We jump to the P. No, 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 no. We got to focus. We got to recognize my standing in God and Christ is good. I am okay in Jesus. I am adopted. And so now I get to repent of these sins and now I get to rely on the Spirit to help me continue and continue and continue to fight this sin. And then now we can move on. Now we can talk about a pathway. Now we can talk about accountability. But until we realize the power of the gospel to actually transform and change, we're lost. Moving on. Jesus kind of changes the analogy, but, but it's still kind of in the same vein. Moving on in verse 14, he says, You... Church are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And this is really, really interesting because in John chapter nine, Jesus actually says, as long as I am on this earth, as long as I am here in the world, 
I am the light of the world, but now he's going to change his tone and he's going to say, you disciples are the light of the world. Why? Because you carry my light. Uh, within the Jewish community, they believed for a lot of good reasons, understanding the Old Testament, but when they looked at Jerusalem, it was called a city on a hill. And so there's a lot of analogies here that his disciples immediately are going to know these references. It was a city on a hill and it was called a light to the Gentiles to say, we, we are here for all nations, not just ethnic Israelites, that we want all people to know Yahweh and to know our good God and the promises that he's given us. And so we want to be this light, this city on a hill. So all these different aspects, right? This town built on a hill cannot be hidden. That was Jerusalem. It can't be hidden. And this whole idea, though, was that they never said, this is our light, that we made this light, that it was always a light that God had given, and they simply reflect that light, that it's the light of Christ. And so the demand from Jesus isn't to produce our own light and to be brighter. It's simply to reflect his light more. So, three aspects of light, similar to the salt. And again, did Jesus have all these in mind? I don't know, but I think these are three aspects of light that we can take and say, yeah, this is what we ought to be. Again, not out of obligation, but because we want to, because of what Christ has already done for us on the cross. First off, it is meant to be seen. You can imagine back in the day without matches, it would be really hard to light a lamp. <laughs> and if you remember the kid's song, I know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. And round and round. No, no, that was, that was David. Never mind. I'm, I'm mixing my childhood song. Sorry. Uh, little light of mine. And don't put it on your bushel. No. Don't let Satan it out. It's meant to be seen. Paul, and Paul's back to like, what is going on? What kind of cult did he grow? Um, it's meant to be seen, period. And uh, when it comes to light, if you can imagine, if you don't have a, a match or a lighter or something, that how much work it would be. And actually, it was actually against the law within the, the Jewish community to extinguish somebody else's lamp. <laughs> that you, you weren't allowed to do that. You, it, was like a, like a, it was just like a, like a mean joke to put somebody's lamp out because they, they didn't just have fires going or maybe, they, maybe somebody or maybe had another. Because it, was, it wasn't a candle. When we think of like a candle like this. It wasn't like that. It was, a, it was a lamp, you know, with a little wick coming out. And so it was just a lot harder to get those things lit. And so the whole idea, though, what would happen is that they would put this lamp up on a stand to give off as much light as possible. The windows were small, so there wasn't a lot of sunlight that came in. And so they'd set this lamp up on the stand, but there was a lot of fear that a wind might, a breeze might come through. And so if they weren't home to kind of tend it, they would actually put it under a basket so it could still get air, but it would protect it from wind. And Jesus is saying, that's not what we're, we don't do that all day long. We don't leave the bushel over this thing. We don't leave the basket over this. It's supposed to be seen. That we're supposed to let other people see our light, that we talk about the light that is within us, not because of anything that we've done, but because of the goodness of God, of calling us to himself, that's meant to be seen. Second aspect is that it is a guide. Uh, a few years ago, uh, several years ago now, well, I don't know, four or five years ago, well, we used to do this thing for Men of Hope called Boot Camp. Uh, COVID and just different things, our, our culture's changed a little bit, but, but Boot Camp, uh, we used to, just all the, all the men would get together and the ladies did something called Breakaway. Uh, I don't know if that's happening uh, this next year or not. Hopefully it will, but, um, and so we just kind of had this, this thing. It was all the men of, all the men of hope in our, in our two campuses at the time, but, but now three. 
And um, there was one, one time I was driving up, and I, I don't remember who I was with. I remember I was with Pastor Drew. Are you, did you ever carpool with me going up there? No? Well, I have this old Jeep, and as all of you know, the, the turquoise Jeep out there. It, uh, <laughs> the turquoise Jeep, what it, what, <laughs> I just derailed myself. It is old, but it's awesome. But the headlights don't work that great. <laughs> And, and there was this one time, and it's covered in fog lights. I mean, I, I, can, I can light up. I mean, it looks like, you know, it looks like the sun when I've got all my lights on. It can be super bright, but that's not legal to drive with all those lights on. Um, and so I, it's on a, on a back road. You're going into the woods, you know, to get to this camp that we were staying at. And anytime a car would come, we would have to turn all of our lights, my lights off. And I didn't have, my headlights just didn't work. I mean, I'd get outside, I'd bang on them, and they'd kind of start to work, and they'd turn off five minutes later. It was bad. And, and that in particular trip, anytime a car was coming at us, you know, their, their lights are shining in your face. And so that kind of blinds you. But I don't even have any light to counteract that. I mean, it was like pull over and stop every time a car would come. Then we could turn all the brights back on and keep going. And it was terrifying. Uh, I know the, the guys that were with me, it was like, you know, we were all like having fun and games. But as soon as that sun started to go down, it started to get dark. It was freaky. <laughs> Uh, I trust my driving skills, but when you don't have light at night and you're driving, it's pretty terrifying. And that's this whole idea that it is a, it is a guide and I go to where the light is. That's where I'm supposed to be going, that it is a guide to my, to my life. And again, it's not my light. I follow where Christ's light is and I follow his example. And yet, church, that's what we're called to do, that we are called to be a guide. We are called to lead people to that light. And similarly, but a little bit different, is that it can warn others of danger. It can warn others of danger. Um, there was a, I, had a, I thought I had a slide. I don't know what happened. I had her picture and everything. But Florence Alshorn, she was a, a well-known uh, principal, uh, one of the first uh, female principals back in the 1800s. And um, she had this phrase that when she was to rebuke a child or a student, uh, that she said that uh, I, I did it with my, my arm around them, right? That if this child needs to be rebuked, I'm going to do this trying to comfort them. And we have this phrase at Hope that matter and manner matter. That the matter, the content is really important, but the, the way in which we do that is equally important. And that's, that's that idea. It's the idea of I'm going to rebuke you, but I want to do it with my arm around you because I care about you. And that's what we ought to do, that we ought to warn others of danger and this isn't just going out on the streets and saying, you know, repent for judgment is near. Maybe that day will come, but we're not there yet. And we warn others in a loving, caring, compassionate way. It's meant to be seen. It's a guide and we can warn others of danger with a light, like a lighthouse. That's what we're called to do. And so Jesus finishes up with this simple verse in 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It sounds very similar to the Apostle Peter in uh, Peter chapter 1, where he's just talking about, hey, we, we, need to glad, we need to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. That's where this phrase comes from. That's where, that's where Peter gets his phrases from the teaching of Jesus, that we want people to see our good works. That's the pathway. Right? That's the P. What motivates me to do the P, to do the good deeds, is the gospel. 
And it's the power and utter reliance on the Holy Spirit. And then we do good deeds. And we do good deeds so that people might see us and see our actions and see our good deeds and ultimately glorify God on the day of judgment, is what Peter says. And they may glorify your Father in heaven. It's they. It's the they that are observant. They may glorify our Father in heaven, that we can point people to the light, that we can be a city on a hill, that we can be salt to the world. And we've been called to do that, but not on our own. We do this. And so is real change possible? Can we change the world? I think in some ways, yes, we can. But if our goal is to just simply do this, do that, do that, and then they'll fix that, and that'll help this thing, I think we're missing the mark. And we can say this about anything, any, any kind of sin, any kind of thing that we see in our world. I've got, a, I've got a heart for the homeless. There's not a week that goes by and probably not even a day when I'm here in this building where I don't interact with, with homeless people. Right? And there's, there's literally a little camp right behind the building. I care about them. But if my goal is only let's go to the pathway, let's try to fix this, implement some kind of law or change this thing and that thing, oh, hey, yo, hey, yo, wake up. What happened there? <laughs> Uh, Chaz fell asleep and slid all the buttons up. It's not true. Um, right, that's, that's what it is. That we need to rely on the gospel to motivate and to make us want to change, not because we have to, but because we get to. And so just in gospel application before the worship team comes back up, we've just got two quick application questions. Are you, am I, are we too quick to jump to the pathway? I want to make sure that we're gospel-centered. We want to make sure that Jesus is always the hero of the story. Make sure the gospel is always the answer. Always. Are we too quick to jump to how do we fix this? And then uh, secondly, are we pointing others to Jesus and the joy that he freely offers? That's a huge aspect. Are we, are we pointing them to his light? And again, the joy that he, that he brings, that he's not a stick in the mud. He doesn't, we don't just have all these arbitrary rules. They're rules that we follow and laws that we follow as under Christ because he has already fulfilled them. And we get to do these things because they are life-giving. In a moment, we're going to have communion. And I think this is just a way to reflect, to remember what it is that Christ has done. So if you're here in the building, feel free to, there's in the back, when you walk in, there's little individual cups and and encourage you to grab one if you're a follower of Jesus. If you can say, yes, I, I have that light of Christ in me and I want to shine that light unto other people, then I encourage you to do that. You don't need to be a member of this church or any other church. If you're watching online, feel free to go grab some kind of element, uh, juice and water or whatever cracker and, and, and partake of these elements with us as we sing these songs. I'm not going to read any passages or, or take these together. Just reflect on the songs. Reflect on what it is that Christ has done that he is the light of the world and he has given us that light so that we can be and continue to share his light on the world. And we remember, and we viscerally get to remember, we get to taste this this bread that was broken for us. We get to taste the juice that represents the the blood that was shed for us and our sins. And then when we believe that, we're in the right standing with God. And that whether these good deeds happen or don't happen the way that we think they should or how we can argue about those all day long, but what I do know is I'm okay in Jesus. So now how can we now point people to Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, again, just our time together this morning. I thank you for your gospel. And I thank you that it influences our pathway and our accountability. And I think that's a whole other conversation. This isn't just... Just sit here. This isn't just, that's the whole point of what Jesus is teaching. 
But it's not, hey, you've been redeemed, so go on vacation. Just relax. Just do your thing, whatever makes you comfortable. No, this is uncomfortable. There's, there's, we need to have positive peer pressure. And the, and the rest of the world is going to say, no, 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 you're not doing it right. You're not living right. So God, would you strengthen us, encourage us to be gospel-centered, to know that we've been adopted by the king, pure and simple. And then that should now motivate us to want other people to be adopted into the same family, to be set free from their sins. So God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.